Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and here are the cases we're looking at this week. A true horror story in a family's suburban home near Disney World. The family and children were fed Benadryl, and then murdered by their own father. The man stayed in the home for weeks with the decomposing bodies of his wife, his children, and the family dog. After initially confessing to the crime, he then claimed it was his wife that was behind it, but fortunately the jury saw through all of that. But first, the murder of a mother in Forest Hills, New York, is carried out, say police, by her handyman, who was apparently her lover. Authorities say that they were arguing. She wanted to end it. He did not. The fight happened in the basement. The woman was stabbed to death, and this all happened while her son, her 13-year-old, was upstairs. We are recording this on Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. Our guest today is Rodney Diggs of Los Angeles. Rodney specializes in civil rights, discrimination, and wrongful death cases, but today it's all about crime. Rodney, welcome to the program. We're so happy to have you. Anna, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on this podcast. Uh, I love watching the different shows, the different episodes. So it's a pleasure and I'm ready to jump in. Oh, I'm so happy. I, I need to publicly apologize to Rodney and all of you. I am totally out of sorts today, everyone, because up until a half hour ago, I had no power. I've had like four hours of sleep. Yes, I managed to shower, <laughs> but I haven't had coffee. And I'm just really relieved that we got the power back on. It's been like camping here. So um, <laughs> forgive me if I'm just not myself today. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Rodney. I appreciate it. Please come back on a day when I'm more focused. <laughs> um, it'll be my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So our first case is about a mom who was stalked by a handyman, and then her body was stuffed into a hockey bag that belonged to her son. The victim in this case is 51-year-old Orsoya Gal. And she lived in an especially quiet and safe street in Forest Hills. Now, Rodney, I grew up in Forest Hills, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to do this case, because, you know, this neighborhood, I know we say this all the time, right? Oh, you know, things like this don't happen here. But really, I mean, this is the kind of neighborhood where this is a most unusual thing to have a murder. Rodney, I'm sure you see that all the time. It's when people are connected to the area, they're like, oh, my goodness, this happened here and so violent? 
Absolutely. No, you know, the fact that it happened in Queens Forest Hill, when, when you think of Queens, you don't really think of the pocket of Forest Hill. And, and not, I didn't, I wasn't too familiar with it myself. So I had to go and research and I saw this is a nice quaint little town and you would not think that something like this uh, would happen, but it did happen. And very violently at that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because as I was reading, you know, where she was last seen alive, what time she was, where she walked. I mean, in my brain, I'm seeing all of this and and thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, you you might say to in some places, no do not walk home at midnight, you know, half a mile. But actually, in the neighborhood where she was, you really can, or at least um, you used to be able to. So let's talk about this case because it's it's fascinating in how police narrowed it down. And they kind of narrowed it, narrowed it down early, but it's how they figured out where she lived that I think is like, so disturbing. So her body was found stuffed in this duffel bag along Metropolitan Avenue, along a parkway and along a park. And a dog walker saw blood on the outside of the duffel bag, called police. It was about 8 a.m. on April 16th because, you know, the bag was covered in, in blood. So when Rodney police unzip this bag, they find a woman stuffed in it, but they notice this trail of blood and to me, this is so fascinating. Police literally followed the trail of blood all the way up to her front door. Right. You know, it, it, it's rare that the clues are that easy for police. But in this case, um, I forget, uh, Mr. Benola was, you could tell this was his first time. He wasn't trying to cover anything up. Um, and we understand that later on because he's so brazen when he gives this confession as to how he did it, when he did it, he gives all the details. But in this case, it seemed all he was trying to do and the excuse that he gave was, you know, I want to put this body in her son's soccer bag just so the family doesn't find the body. And that's that's really it. But, yeah, you have this trail of blood that is about a mile away. And that leads to believe that he stabbed her so many times and there was so much blood that the trail was able to lead you back to her house for a mile, an entire mile. Yeah, it was really violent. Police say uh, about 50 stab wounds. So I think you're right. I mean, it sounds horrible to say it and you're saying it in the most polite way, but it's almost as if a lot of blood is gushing out through this duffel bag. And it's interesting that the bag had wheels on it as well. And ultimately, police were able to go through doorbell uh, video cams and security cameras in the neighborhood to to really literally pick up someone, you know, dragging this duffel bag with this mom um, stuffed in it. Now, the other thing I want to explain is is kind of like this neighborhood, because this area of Metropolitan Avenue and Forest Hills, um, for those of you who watch the TV show Blue Bloods, for example, mm-hmm. a ton of that show is shot there. There's even an ice cream shop there um, where they're constantly shooting. I, get, I, I want everyone to understand that it's kind of like a middle class neighborhood dotted with businesses. So again, this was an incredibly isolated but very specific crime which the cameras were able to pick up because it was so unusual you know who drags a big duffel bag through a quiet neighborhood at this hour being picked up by all these cameras so um i i am also i want to get your take on this so when the police go to the house 
and they they find a 13 year old boy in the house unharmed and so they handcuff him and they take him in for questioning he is a minor he turns out to be the woman's son what do you think about that rodney well at this time the police have no other clues other than you have a a a duffel bag or a soccer bag the blood is going back to the house and then you have the son who's upstairs there's no signs of forced entry because what at least the police believe is that either uh Benola had keys to her house or he knew where the hidden key was to get in the house and so initially before they find this out there's no signs of forced entry so they can only believe that okay it must be the son but then they quickly disperse of uh of, of that contention um but it's but it's interesting because things like this like you said don't happen in, in forest hills and there's no other there is no other clues that the police have until later on and and i'm trying to figure out you know when they put it together but when they find the note on the refrigerator that says i need a new handyman and then that's <laughs> when they start to look into the handyman oh my god what are the chances right so as it as it turns out police after talking with friends and family they start to learn a lot of details there was a handyman david bonola who had done work on the house for a few years he apparently knew where the hidden key was to the house you said there was no forced entry so there are only two options she either let him in or he let himself in and so um and then they of course they start picking up surveillance cameras not only here but where david bonola lives in the other end of queens but I think once police start hearing, because it's always like they're, they're always asking, so what was going on, right? Oh, always what's going on in the family? Where is everyone? Now, this woman um, was married. She was married with two sons. The husband and the oldest son were in Oregon looking at universities for him to begin college. So the younger son, the 13-year-old, was at home with mom. And so then once police find out, that the handyman was more than a handyman. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's a clear note on the fridge that says, get a new handyman. You're starting to, to, to piece things together. And then the evidence just flows in. It just like, it, it flows in. Police say that um, as they followed the bloody trail, they not only went to um, Orsolia's Orsol- house, but they also found a bloody jacket bloodstained tissues, and then in the park, Forest Park, which was nearby, they also found boots, a t-shirt, and bloody bandages. So we all know all this is going to be covered in DNA. It may be the victims, but there's a chance that it could be um, the killers, which in this case, David Bonolo, as we will find out when police finally track him down a few days later, he had cuts all over his hands and he had bandages. Uh, when police stopped him, he right. claimed it happened at work. You know, I'm a handyman, very sloppy. I'm all thumbs, right? <laughs> but it's interesting, too, because he went to the hospital the next day, right? So he didn't try to nurse his own wounds. He went to the hospital and they said the wounds are uh, too deep for us to treat here. And then he went to another hospital to get treated. And that would be consistent with, you know, possibly cutting his hand because he had a knife and he stabbed, stabbing her over 50 times. And so that will be consistent with the type of wounds that he would have on his hands. Again, he wasn't the the sharpest knife, you know, pun intended, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, He just left all these clues for police. But then again, I guess he didn't care because, as we'll find out later, 
he admitted to everything two times to the police and to the prosecutors. Which will be interesting whether they can really use any of that because the first time he made his alleged confession, police say he did not request an attorney. So whether that is true or not, as we always know, when these confessions are made, and we're going to see that in the next case where the guy confesses and then in court he says, oh, yeah, 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 no, that was, no, (laughs) I I didn't know what I was saying. Right. (laughs) So, you know, we we see that happen a lot. Obviously, the alleged confession is interesting because according to police prosecutors and all these published reports, it gives us some insight as to what was going on in his mind and why they have not charged him yet with first degree. We're going to get into the charges later because apparently it wasn't premeditated. He apparently went there to convince her to stay with him. And um, this is... I mean, this is all crazy, but okay. Apparently, according to him, as he's telling the police his version of events, he had been watching a bunch of videos, um, dating advice on how to win a woman. And we'll get to the topics of the video. And, And basically, this guy was like, literally, it's like, okay, I've done my videos. I've done my homework. I got magic. I got it going on. I'm gonna get her back. And it ended up with a massacre in the basement. Um, Correct. In in the base, I mean, over 750 different type of videos saved in his YouTube cache. And it's interesting because he has videos. And and when you see this, you you can tell it's a crime of passion. And then when you see the type of videos, oh, this guy is a narcissist. (laughs) And that was my initial thought. And then I saw that he had a video that uh, was titled something how to deal with narcissists, right? And then he had videos um, how to make her love me when we break up or how to deal with a married woman or, you know, seven. Yes, eight. how to deal with a married woman. Another <laughs> one was like how to deal with a Hungarian woman and she ends up being Hungarian. So he was really doing his research, thinking to himself, I'm going to win her back. I just need to do the work and I will convince her otherwise. Well, yeah, he needs to do a lot of work on himself and, and these videos are clearly, you know, just no. not enough and, and, and was, wasn't gonna work, right? Wasn't gonna work, but he didn't know that. Um, and I think, again, heat of passion is probably why it's second degree murder charges as opposed to first degree. I don't think he went there with the intention of killing her, but boy, did it go, did it go south. So I, I always loved um, how things unfold in real time because I always find that interesting for people who are fascinated by crime and crime investigations because it's easy to look back once you know it all but as things are unfolding I always find it's like you see the red flags or you don't and so um what what's interesting here is they started to retrace the mom's steps immediately Mm -hmm. um because there's like a little side to this if you will she'd gone to Lincoln Center that night to see a performance And she'd come back to Forest Hills and then went to the local bar that she likes to go to, had a drink, was talking to the bartender, the manager. Everyone remembers her. She went in alone and she left alone. So um, she then walked a half a mile and was home by 1230 a.m. This would now be Friday into Saturday. So that's very interesting because, Rodney, of course, you're all thinking, was she followed? Um, Was he waiting? Did he know? How did he know? How did he know? I mean, we don't know all these details, but presumably there were some communications or he literally was waiting all night for her. Yeah, that's that is an interesting point, because I thought 
did he did he wait for her? Um, but he would have to be waiting a long time because, as you said, she went to the Lincoln Center, which is not that close, but it's pretty close. But it probably started early. And then she goes back, has a drink. But the time frame in which he gets to her house is between 1230 and 1240. So in between 10 minutes after she arrived. Yeah. So I don't know right now. I haven't seen anything that shows there's any communication between them uh, via text message or phone. I don't know if she called him to, to come over um, because her husband was out of town. Um, or maybe she said, I'll be home by then. And he wanted to talk, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to that, but he did arrive shortly thereafter. Um, and either she let him in or he he came in. Obviously it wasn't anything that was not normal because the son wasn't awake. The son was still asleep upstairs before they got to the basement. And so maybe it was a cordial consensual invitation or arrival at the same time at the house. That part, you know, we'll probably know later once the police continue to do uh, its investigation. Yeah, I find that very interesting. You know, I don't believe in coincidence, especially when it comes to crime. So um, either it was coordinated or he was waiting because that wasn't a long time in between her arrival and then when he arrived. So according to the New York Post and the Daily News, David the handyman, is a divorced father of two, and he lived at the other end of Queens in Richmond Hill. So here's the other thing. Um, The Post is saying that he was here illegally, had been in the United States for a long time illegally, so there could be some additional charges that he will be facing about um, his status here. Um, Not to go off on another tangent, but it's just another level of um, potential crimes that he's facing here. So surveillance cameras in the neighborhood where the handyman lives picked him up returning home around 6 a.m. So now by Wednesday, police have narrowed it down to David. They want to talk to the handyman who's being replaced by the post-it on the refrigerator. (laughs) And he's got bandages all over his hands, as we've said, and he manages to explain that away. It's like, oh, happened today, an accident working, so dangerous. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, that didn't work. So police say that David confessed and allegedly provided details of what happened in this massacre in the basement. This conversation, police say, reveals the motive, not so much for the murder, but why he was there and what went wrong with um, basically all his love tools. The, The love tools that he found on YouTube were just not working for him. So... As you mentioned, um, not only did they find all those videos that you went through, but they said about a week before the murder, he added one video to his playlist um, from a dating coach um, called The Attractive Man. Yes. Help me. Um, And then the video was entitled Seven Mindsets That Attract Women Like Crazy. Okay, that I mean, that pretty much is telling you what was going on in his head. This is another favorite of mine. How to deal with a relationship with a, with a woman <laughs> when she is just not that into you. <laughs> I think he knew. <laughs> it was stacked up against him. Oh my goodness. All right. So the other thing is that David Manola, according to police, um, was a fan of crime videos, a lot of crime videos, um, violent ones, ones that showed a lot of stabbings and shootings and rapes and murders, which I suppose if you're a regular listener of this podcast, <laughs> one <laughs> might say the same of you. But um, I, I mean, 754 videos. 
depicting all this stuff? That's... You know, it's 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 telling to say the least. Um, you know, this is David is a guy who wants to be in in control, and he's living out his life based on everything that he's seen online, based on these videos, and based on this online advice of dating. You know, he has this sort of bravado, machismo, um, you know, sort of personality. And when it doesn't go his way, and based on everything that he's learned on the, the dating side of the videos, then he snaps and then he goes into everything that he's learned on the murder side of the videos, um, almost to the point to where uh, it was similar to a stabbing that happened at a, at a college, um, either that year or a year before. I mean, almost in similar fashion. And, and it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it 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 really is. Um, I I don't know what to make of this. I mean, there are some photos. Also, police said that um, he was friends with the victim on Facebook, and that he would post comments about how beautiful she looked. So clearly, you know, he definitely had feelings for her. Do you know? And, and was somewhat public about it. And remember, she's married. So, um, you know, is it really okay for the handyman to be posting, you look really pretty on Facebook when you're married? Uh, yeah. Uh, um, right. Okay. So he has now been charged with second degree murder, tampering with physical evidence and criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. He faces 25 years to life if convicted. Um, he appeared in court Tuesday of this week um, when he was being moved uh, back into the squad car reporters were yelling at him and um asking like why he did it in typical new york style and <laughs> he screamed back at them things we cannot repeat here but basically f you and mother f you <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that's the story it's um it's really troubling and uh you now have two children without a mom and a husband who if he didn't know that there was an affair going on, man, what a way to find out what the heck was going on in your house. Oh, Anna, what else is uh, 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 troubling but also interesting is after the murder, he took her phone and texted the husband. Oh, that's right, Rodney. That's he took right. Her phone and text the husband and threaten him and, and the kids. I mean, I, st I, I stabbed the person who I'm in love with over 50 times. I slice her neck. I put her into her son's soccer bag. You know what? Oh, let me get her phone real quick. Let me go ahead and, and, and text her husband all these, you know, messages. And then he leaves and dumps the body. It, it's, it, I don't know what's going on in his mind. And, and, and the fact that the officers found him four days afterwards next to the body. I mean, he's just proud of his work at this time. He's just going, he's looking, he's like, oh, still nothing. Okay. And that's how they catch him because he's right there looking at the body four days later, or at least where he placed the body at. I mean, but we know more of David because you have all these reports. Um, he, he, he liked to visit the local baristas, right? He'll go to the Starbucks and some other coffee shops and how the people describe him, um, you know, fits to these videos that he watched. Oh, he was a he was a creep. We were weirded out by him. He he proposed to, you know, two separate women who worked here or he would leave love notes in the tip jars. And, you know, uh, he would ask us very inappropriate questions that a client, you know, or a, a patron shouldn't ask. I mean, 
to say the least, David thought a, a lot of himself. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, you know, how a jury of his peers, um, you know, find all the evidence and, and what they come to at the time of a, a verdict and deliberation. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be a lot of forensics here. And one thing that will, I think, to a degree work in his defense is because he was a handyman, there may very well be D- his DNA in the house. His DNA being in the house is not outrageous when you consider he worked at the house. Now, I realize that's different than saying right there, um, you know, at the murder scene and on the bag and in the bag. I'm not saying they've, they've said that they found it yet, but presumably that's where they're going to look. So that'll be a whole different case. But there's just that tiny, tiny little window here. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how this case proceeds. I think based, Rodney, on the way you describe him, he doesn't sound like a guy who's going to want to take a plea deal. Because he's going to be able to convince the jury otherwise. Uh, he, he wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. He wants the spotlight. I think he's eating this up. Um, and, and you're right. He's not going to take a plea deal. He wants to take this all the way. Um, but who knows if he's going to come up with a defense or if his attorney is going to be successful in suppressing uh, the confession. Um, and if they are, then you have his side of the story. The kid is upstairs asleep. They're in the basement. And you have nothing else than you do have the video evidence of him walking down with a, you know, right. Um, so right. that part we do have, which is good because it's undeniably him, um, you know, walking. Nobody does that at, you know, between 12 and 4 a.m. Um, so, yeah, it, it will be interesting, uh, you know, what he says and, and the sort of, you know, defense that he uh, that he puts on. Or it'll be interesting. And if he even gets a lawyer. Well. Oh, like he may try and do this himself. I don't think that's a good idea. Although I'm sure on YouTube he can get like good strategy, criminal defense strategy on YouTube, or he could watch our program. (laughs) Okay. Our next case is the conclusion to a horrific murder of a family and their dog in Florida. We covered this case when it first happened. We now have a conviction and some more answers, even though there are some questions. You all were so outraged by this case. I mean, the comments at the time on YouTube, you all were furious. So, you know, I often say we're going to watch a case. And I don't just say that. And those of you who are regulars know that when there's a development in a major case that you all have shown interest in, we will update it. And so that's what we finally have here. So it was just after the Christmas holidays and the new year in January of 2020, when an entire family is found dead in the exclusive community of Celebration, Florida. Really expensive house they're found in. Now, this was a family that was very wealthy because they commuted. They had two homes. They had the home here in Florida, and then they had a home up in Connecticut and a business up in Connecticut. And, you know, the father would commute. So clearly, you know, at least on the outside, it looks like this was a very well-to-do family to be able to pull that off. So the father, who is now 46 years old, Anthony Tote, was found alive in that Florida home, living with the decomposing bodies of his wife and three children and the dog. Okay. Really, really bizarre cases. I mean, unbelievable. Now, he initially confessed and the confessions were videotaped. So he initially confesses, um, but then when this goes to the murder trial recently, 
he starts telling a totally different story, completely different. He contradicts the original confession, and he very conveniently puts the blame on his wife, says, oh, she's the one who killed the children, and then she killed herself. Me? I walked into this horrific thing. I got so upset, I puked and cried. That was his answer. It's like, poor me, I'm a victim. (laughs) Imagine me walking in and seeing this. This is what he tells the jury. I can't believe he took the stand. What, What is he doing? This... This case is is sickening. Um, it, it's absolutely sickening. Um, he confessed twice, uh, once on January 13th that day, and, and then again on January 15th. He, he did it twice. So when he initially confessed, according to the videotapes themselves, his own words, he describes how he killed everyone and in, and in the order in which he killed everyone and how he did it. So... I think that's what's so shocking for everyone is, first of all, it's shocking for anyone to process the possibility that a father could so so methodically go from room to room in the house and kill each of your children and smother them and stab them, right? I can't even imagine that. And And look, the loss of life here is horrific. The wife, the three kids... And then everyone said, oh, my God, and the dog, too. He suffocated the dog, Breezy, the family dog. So, so you, you know, you can just see how he carried this out. And when you match up the crime scene with his initial, his initial confession, it kind of makes sense. So I think that's why everyone was so surprised of the crazy turns that this took. So we're going to play some of those clips of him on the stand so you all can hear him in all his full-on crazy and see what we're saying. But what I want to do is go over some of the facts and what was going on in this case for those of you um, who didn't hear the first podcast on this or just to refresh you because there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on in this family. So Anthony Tote was a successful physical therapist, and he ran several clinics up in Connecticut. But before the murders happened, he was under investigation by federal authorities and ultimately indicted for um, fraudulent medical billing. He would bill, this is what the government said, that he would bill for sessions when the patient wasn't even there. And that there was double billing and all this was going on. This could explain how he was paying the bills. You know, he did have real, real patients, but the volume um, of claims exceeded the number of patients in the door. And so all of that was going on. And he knew that. That's not like, you know, that was a secret. When the feds are looking into you like that, they're calling you in They're You know, it's he knew. So that's going on right before Christmas. So, um, and he was actually indicted for submitting these claims. So federal agents were looking for him in Florida. There was an arrest warrant for him. So the federal authorities asked the local sheriff's department to do a knock-knock, you know, to, while this is going on, then keep this in mind. So you've got the federal case going on and the authorities are looking for you, knocking at the door, nobody's coming. Then after Christmas, her family, the wife's family is like, something weird is going on here. We we haven't heard from her. We haven't heard from the kids. No, this is, something's wrong. So they asked for a welfare check. So you, So what always struck me about this case, Rodney, is that there were multiple visits to this house of murder 
where officers were standing outside the door and knocking. And because no one came to the door, nothing was done. I mean, they were in there dead. They just didn't know it. And this to me is just so upsetting. For over two weeks, for over two weeks, the body's just decomposing all in the bedroom upstairs on the second floor. Um, in, in addition, though, too, his sister called and, and that's how. And so the, the authorities got together and said, you know what, let's kill two birds at one stone. Let's go ahead and, and get this warrant. At the same time, now we can do the welfare check. This guy, Anthony. Then when the police come in, hey, where's your wife, Mr. Tote? Oh, I think she's upstairs sleeping. Then they go to find, you know, four dead bodies. And it's sad. I mean, you got his four and a half year old daughter, his two boys, his wife and, and the dog. I, propped up in, in the bed, the, the wife and the daughter, and then the two kids, the two boys on mattresses in, in the bedroom. And then you see the soiled clothes and everything. I, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and he does stuff crazy afterwards. You know, then when the police come, then he tries to drink all this Benadryl um, and, and tries to use that as an excuse so that he can be, you know, committed. Um, the lengths that he goes through to, you know, cover up these deaths and the contradictions and stories that he tells is, is sickening and, it, and, and it's appalling. It's appalling. It is. You mentioned the Benadryl. So he tells the authorities this is when they finally walk in and they're like, we're going to take a look upstairs because your wife's not answering. And he tells them and he's unsteady on his feet and he's shaking and he's unsteady. So they think there's something wrong with him. Then he tells them that he has taken a lethal amount of Benadryl. So, of course, they you know, he said he was trying to kill himself. So, of course, they have to rush him to the hospital to save his life to figure out what in the world is going on, because at this point, you know, okay, he clearly looks like suspect number one, but you never know. Who knows? Well, crazier things have happened. Um, and, and I just, oh my God, I, I just, I, I can't even, I can't. We were so shocked when this happened because it was right around the holidays. So um, let's go through the children. So upstairs, as you said, they found the decomposing bodies of wife, Megan. They found four and a half year old Zoe, 11 year old Tyler, 13 year old Alexander, and of course, Breezy. So the coroner determined that he had been living with those bodies at least for two weeks. There's no question about it based on the level of decomposition. Apparently, the father had given his family Benadryl. So there was a whole thing going on with Benadryl here. He right. gave them Benadryl to make them drowsy and so that they wouldn't fight back. According to his videotaped confession, the father said that he killed little Zoe first, the little girl, by smothering her with a pillow. You know, when someone is doing something like this, I always, it's like whether something is planned or it's a reaction. At what point can you not stop yourself? You could have stopped yourself. You may have given them Benadryl, but you didn't have to, you didn't have to kill. He had so many opportunities not to kill them. So many. So many. So many. I'm, your little baby girl, you, you take your body, you say that you roll on top of her to keep her still. You place your hand over her mouth and then you suffocate her for almost 15 minutes. And, and then you say, oh, yeah, she was, you know, screaming for a couple minutes and, and that was done. Um, I, 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 I can't. And then and then you go and to do the same thing to your boys. And then afterwards, you, you stab them both in the abdomen, um, you stab your wife twice and then you suffocate the dog. I, 
it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and apparently, you know, um, the two boys, um, they fought back. So that's the other thing. When you see your child struggling and fighting back and it still doesn't click something in your brain to stop what you're doing, again, you know, the child is in fear, knows that what you're doing is wrong, and yet you continue. You just continue and you just kill them all, all of them. So um, Todd, you know, Anthony Tote had um, claimed that his wife, Megan, had said to him, his quotes, if you love me, you can do this. I want to be with my babies, a reference to the wife's murder. Um, Then he allegedly told her to take more Benadryl so she wouldn't fight back before her death. Again, this is his version. I don't know. Does that make sense? It's very possible if she was the last one killed and she didn't know this was going on and then realizes this is going on, she may have been like, I I can't. Like, I, I just, I can't. Um, we don't know. We only have his version of events and they're all over the place. Yeah, so, yeah we have three or four different versions of events. You know? Oh, crazy, crazy. So um, as we said, then all of a sudden he blames the wife. He, he gets on the stand and he starts blaming the wife and there are different versions of it. She's, he said that the wife killed the children and the dog and then she stabbed herself to death. Okay, no, that was one version. Then he said... And then, of course, he says, oh, I came home. Everyone was dead. It was the worst day of my life. Really, buddy? This is the worst day of your life? I don't think so. I don't think so. so. Then he says, oh, it was all part of a doomsday pact that he made with his wife to ensure salvation. I have a feeling he was watching some of those videos himself while trying to come up with a defense. Okay? All right. So I want you all to listen for yourselves. This is Anthony Tote on the stand. Uh, This clip is from Fox 35 in Orlando. I came home and my kids were dead. It was the most horrible day of my life. It was a very dramatic turn of events as 46-year-old Anthony Tote tells jurors that it was his wife, Megan, who killed their kids and dog as well as herself, not him. She had blood on her shirt. I then discovered the kids. I went into the rooms and found them dead. He insinuated there was something in the dessert she made for the kids, which he didn't eat. When I found out what happened, I puked. I cried. Just yesterday, prosecutors showed this video where Toad told investigators that he was the one who killed his wife and kids, as well as a family dog. I stabbed him, and he started kicking. Was trying to get up. Well, that is you in the video, right? It's a sickly version of me, yes. Well, clearly, Rodney, no one believed his version of events this last set. And the jury took just six hours of deliberations. I can't even believe it took that long. The jury unanimously found him guilty of all of the murders. And he was also charged for the dog. Um, And again, I think that goes to the totality of what was done to the entire family. And I'm just... Of course, once you're convicted of, of murder, the additional charge for the dog, you know, isn't going to make a huge difference in his sentencing, but it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of justice. And so he faces four life sentences in prison for the deaths of his family. And he was sentenced to one year in the county jail, which, of course, um, for the killing of Breezy the dog. Right. Right. He doesn't get off on anybody. On, on anybody. And, and the jury got it right. I applaud the jury. 
Um, you are correct that it was, uh, you know, maybe about uh, five and a half hours too long. But nonetheless, they came to the right unanimous uh, verdict. And he, he, he deserves that. I mean, first of all, OK, let's say his story. If this was a pact, then, buddy, why aren't you dead? Mm-hmm. Why are you still here if this is a pact that you had? Right. And then he has this other story that he came home, saw the kids dead and he wanted to protect his wife. And so he was going to take the blame, which he did not do at any time during the trial, <laughs> which is crazy. But that's not going to be my first thought. If I see and I have any inkling that my wife kills my kids, the last thought I'm going to say is, oh, baby, it's going to be OK. I'm going to you no, know, you killed my my kids. I have three, all three of them. I have no more. And then what I'm going to do thereafter, if you if you kill yourself, I'm not going to sit in the house for two weeks. I'm going to call the police immediately. Who lives like that? You know, who lives like that? And look, if he again, if whether it was the doomsday thing, the salvation or whatever, he had two weeks of looking at these dead bodies to figure out what to do with himself. Right. He, he chickened out. Is, is what he you did. know, he absolutely he's a total coward. And I'm curious about your opinion on this. Prosecutors said that they were not going to pursue the death penalty, which they have in Florida, um, because they said they thought his mental state could be a mitigating factor on the decision, even though he was never declared incompetent or any of that. But of course, you listen to him and it's like you're either listening to a pathological liar or the guy's just totally unbalanced. Right. Uh, again, just just like uh, David, this is another narcissist. The the fact that he's so brave and he comes up and now he's putting this on his wife. You know, what's interesting and 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 we'll get to that, you know, later is 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 the appeal because the court kept out any sort of affirmative defense about his mental stability. And so he wasn't able to raise that at the uh, time of trial, but I, given all the different versions of the story, I don't think that, you know, that would be a, a, a defense anyway. I mean, you flat out murdered your children and your wife and Breezy. And so, um, no, I, I think that, you know, the the Court of Appeals should uphold, you know, the lower court's uh, verdicts and do not disturb that. And uh, he should spend the next four lifetimes and a year in jail rotting. Now, to your question, I don't know why they didn't go with the death penalty. If any case deserves it, this is a case that deserves the death penalty. He should have got it. Um, they shouldn't have took that away. They should have let the jury, which I think they would have came back and, and gave him the death penalty um, in my mind. Um, but at least he's never going to see the light of day and he'll be behind bars for the rest of his, his life. Well, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. It was disturbing then. It's even more disturbing now because while we have some more facts, we also have, you know, his insane stories, which are, oh, they're just revolting. Here's one more thing about this case. Some of you may remember this. Um, to me, it kind of, it answers a lot. To add to this crazy story, when Anthony was just a boy, he was just four years old, his father hired someone to try and kill his mother. She survived. And the father went to prison for five years. Now, Anthony was at home and saw this when it happened, the attempted murder of his own mother. And he lived with his mother, didn't want a relationship with his father because of what had happened. That is 
an incredibly traumatic event, and then all the different parts of that are so disturbing. So here's what's changed in life. Now the father, he recently did an interview with with a local newspaper. Um, He says that he's now reunited with his son and he calls his son every day in the jail. Help me, Rodney. (laughs) You know, this is this is one that that I wish I could. I mean, now now I guess like father like like son or the the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. I I don't know because now they have reconnected. They have reconnected over one father didn't complete what he wanted to, but now the son completed the mission that his father had years ago. I mean, it's crazy. His mom still has the bullet lodged in her head from that attempted murder. Uh, this whole family on his side. Um, Let me be fair, not the whole family, but at least the father and the son. Um, I have no words. Um, You know, the the father's now trying to come to the defense and saying, oh, his fair, his son didn't get a fair trial. (laughs) Oh, please. You, You know who life wasn't fair for? The wife those three kids and the dog, all those lives that were taken, that's what's not fair. Give me a break. So I just, it's the kind of case that just infuriates you. So I can't wait to hear all of you comment on what you think of all of this and how this is, you know, finally been settled, although he's appealed. So who knows? Who knows? I hope it's not overturned, but who knows? I I hope it's not overturned either. I I was reading some uh, articles and there are actually patients of his or people who they took their kids to his therapy who are coming to his defense. It's mind boggling. I mean, you have people out there that actually are coming to his defense and saying, no, he could never do this. Who else did it? (laughs) I'm I'm just glad that the people who think that were not on that jury um, so that it would not have rendered a different verdict. The verdict is right. It should stand. What he did um, is is mind-boggling, grotesque, um, and 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 inexcusable. Yeah. Um, again, the, the jury got it right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I have, I have a lot to say about him, but I I digress. Don't worry. <laughs> All our listeners and viewers will have plenty to say. They'll say everything we're thinking. <laughs> It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on our social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike. Hi, Will. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Rodney. Will, how are you doing? Doing all right. So this week's case involves an unlikely hero. Reportedly, a pet duck led investigators to a missing grandmother's remain. Mark Mark Allen Barnes and Angela Wamsley were both charged with first-degree murder for Nellie Sullivan's death. Now, Nellie Sullivan was the grandmother, reportedly, of Angela Wamsley. The body was found in North Carolina. Uh, So both of these uh, suspects were taken into custody back in December of 2020 on several charges. These included animal cruelty, possession of drug paraphernalia, and more. And then a year later, uh, Mark Allen Barnes was charged with concealing a death. Wamsley re- received the same charge. Now, no one had seen Nellie Sullivan, the grandmother, uh, 
Uh, it was reportedly suspicious, her, her disappearance. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have a body in the case. so It was really hard to move forward. Uh, the grandmother lived in a trailer with the couple. And by all accounts, this grandmother was just a sweet little old lady. Uh, a neighbor described that she was the type of woman who would give you the clothes off of her back. And what finally turned the corner in this case uh, was when a pet duck helped locate the remains. Now, apparently some neighbors were chasing this pet duck and it ran underneath. Are you saying dog or duck? Duck. Yes. Duck is in quack, quack. Duck duck. is in quack, quack, as in foul, as in. Okay, I thought it was a dog. Okay, all right. No, we have we have a duck. So uh, they're chasing after their pet duck here. It ran underneath the trailer uh, that the that the couple and the grandmother used to inhabit. And as they were chasing after this pet duck, they found a container that had Nellie Sullivan's remains in it. Now, the police officer in the case said that if he could give the duck a medal, he would. Reportedly, the body had been lying in the container for what they think could be multiple years. And Wamsley and Barnes this whole time were collecting the Social Security benefits uh, of Sullivan and also Uh refilling her prescriptions. Now, the cause of death has not been determined, uh, but hopefully we see, you know, a medal or perhaps a key to the city for this duck. Uh, but people had a lot to say about this story. Um, so Angela N said, that's ducking fantastic. I'm so glad that this crime was uncovered. You got to love a good duck pun in the, in that case. And, you know, it's a good point because, you know, at the heart of this is a really, truly, you know, sad crime and loss of life. But just the way it was discovered is, is something that was so unique. Um, so MGM said, I've heard of cadaver dogs. Never cadaver ducks, which it's a first for me, too. I actually I don't even know what duck's sense of smell is like, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I, I'd have to I'd have to consult with somebody on that. Uh, <laughs> SRT said thanks to the duck for helping investigators quack the case. I like that one. Quack uh, the case. That's my favorite so far. Quack the uh, case. <laughs> Jackie K said, wow, that's amazing. Ducks certainly know when there's something foul afoot. That's good. I, but I, I, quack I like the it. case is still better. <laughs> still one. Uh, and Mary J came in with a Scooby-Doo reference. She said, I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you and that meddling duck. Uh, Which I, I don't know if any of them were. I, I don't know if either of the suspects had a ghost costume on or anything prior to any of this. Could but, be. Uh, who knows? Uh, Who knows? It, if they were it, using grandma's meds, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be mad, though, at a Scooby-Doo type spinoff with a duck as the main character. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Will. We'll Absolutely. see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Most of you know that I've been covering crime for a very long time. And along the way, you find some magnificent and inspiring people who work tirelessly for justice and to help survivors of crime. And I want to take a moment to honor an amazing woman who just retired from the LAPD, Beatrice Germala has retired after 37 years on the force. She was the first woman to reach the status of deputy chief of special ops. Okay, that is a big job at the LAPD. I went to her retirement party this week. We're going to post some photos. And I just wanted to share that with you because, you know, um, sometimes you just meet inspiring people. And I worked with her for a really long time and I want to wish her well. You know, she was born and raised in LA. She went to Immaculate Heart High School, the all girls Catholic school, which the Duchess went to, Meghan Markle. I mean, it's a 
this is a, a school that produces some amazing women. Um, she's raised her, right? She's raised her family here. When she was a young cop, her mom had to help her, so she, you know, to take care of the family so she could go to work. I'm sure she's seen a lot in her 37 years, Rodney. Things have changed a lot. It could not have been easy for her in the beginning. And um, I just, you know, I want to wish her well um, because I think it's important um, to, to cherish the people who try and help a community to be a better place. And I've always seen that. And just little little fun facts. You know the TV show Bosch? which is all shot. Okay. So she was captain of Hollywood station at the time. And she gave the go ahead for that show to be shot there. And it is all shot there and on location. It's just the, like these little things that you get to know about people. <laughs> and I just want to share one, one story that tells you everything about who this person is. And this is about really a smaller crime. She calls me one day, Rodney, <laughs> and she says to me, and I need your help with something because I'm just, there's not much I can do, you know, police wise. I'm like, what's going on captain <laughs> right because it's like it's a weird right it's like what's the ask here okay rodney do you remember um and for those of you who visited hollywood there's the hollywood walk of fame where all the stars are and in front of the movie theater where the you know the handprints and the footprints it's a very famous place the hollywood mm -hmm. walk of fame where tourists go and um all of a sudden, all these people dressed up as cartoon characters started showing up like there'd be Wonder Woman and Batman and Spider-Man, people dressed up in these costumes, not associated in any way with the inter in intellectual property or the copyright of this or, or sponsored by the studios in any way. They just would dress like this and right. then they would pose for photos and they would ask you for money. So um, she was losing her mind because um, she found out that some of the people who were doing this were convicted child sex offenders. Uh -huh. And because the courts had recently ruled, said to her that she couldn't arrest them or not even arrest them, she couldn't make them move because their First Amendment right to express themselves as a cartoon character was paramount. So the captain is losing her mind and she's like, I do not want these children to be touched or stand next to these people. Can you help me? Can you do a story? Uh -huh. And again, you know, that's, it may not be the biggest, most serious crime out there, but here's someone who was like, I am powerless to fix this situation, but I want to save children from sexual predators and standing next to them. Yeah, that, that needs to be done. The, the fact that, you know, there, I get it, the, the, the Constitution is the governing law and they have freedom of expression and association. But you also are convicted and you also can't be around kids and certain amount of feet you have to step by. So, I mean, I, I think at some point <laughs> there has to be some sort of leveling playing ground for a field and, you know, to tie her hands in that way when she knows that these individuals have been convicted. And, and I don't even know for what and I don't want to think about it because I think those people are another story, another time. Um you know, at least she had a friend that she can call on you, Anna, and, you know, to go ahead and, and, and do a story and, and assist with that. But that's that that that's troubling and, and something does need to, to be done about that. Yeah. And so I just wanted to share that because I think it says a lot about the person, right? Thinking outside the box, worried about the community. I can't I'm literally handcuffed, <laughs> but I got to find a way out of this because I can't stand this happening to children. You know, tourists who bring their children and they're all hugging Spider-Man, right? You're like, oh my God. Um, so I, I just want to wish um, 
Beatrice Gramala well, and um, it's a huge loss for us here in Los Angeles. So thank you for indulging me for a moment, um, you know, to share in to share in someone's good news here. Okay, that's it for us. Uh, Rodney, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Where can they find your law firm if they need an attorney? Absolutely. Uh, the name of my law firm is Ivy McNeil White for Selling Bigs. We are the largest Black-owned uh, law firm in the nation. Uh, we are downtown Los Angeles on the corner of Fifth and Flower. Uh, our number is 213-489-0028. Uh, our website is www.imwlaw.com. Uh, you can personally find me on uh, Instagram, Rodney Biggs ESQ, and across all other uh, media platforms, just as my name, Rodney, uh, Rodney Biggs. Rodney, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you'll come back and I'll be, um, you know, I will have slept, <laughs> had coffee. <laughs> we'll have the power on. <laughs> if I'm invited back, I would love to come back. I think this was fun. This was riveting. I look forward to to this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. So thank you for having me on, on your podcast. And uh, yeah, I do hope to be back. Oh, consider it done. You're part of the crime family now, as we say. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Simple as that. You all can find me at Anna G News, uh, Anna with one N. You can listen to all our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're watching us and then sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast and do not, don't do crime.